0: Welcome back to the Asia Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Chan. You can find me on Twitter, at JChan Pharma. In this episode, I speak with Pierce Ingram, CEO and co-founder of Hummingbird Bioscience, a biotech startup in Singapore. Hummingbird has been on my radar for some time. When I first came across the company, what really stood out to me was their anti-HER3 antibody program. And I thought that was pretty interesting because you commonly hear about her2 from her2 positive breast cancer. And a lot of drug companies have developed drugs targeting the her2 receptor, but you don't really hear much about her3. And we know that as part of cancer growth and progression, the so-called her signaling pathway is overly active. And in the signaling process, these her receptors pair with each other. So her2 would pair with her3. So it's pretty interesting to see Hummingbird developing something for her three specifically. The company has also been slowly and steadily garnering support for their drug R&D over the years. So, for example, in the last two years, Nobel laureate James Allison joined their scientific advisory board in 2019. They've raised almost 70 million in funding through its series A and B financing. And in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Hummingbird began developing an antibody targeting COVID-19. Pierce also recently landed a spot on Business Insider's list of top 100 people transforming business in Asia. So with the company making so much progress in recent years, I was excited to speak to Pierce. I wanted to get to know him a little bit and ask him how he founded the company, why Hummingbird is targeting less popular cancer targets like HER3, and his thoughts about where the field of cancer therapeutics is heading. So here is my conversation with Piers Ingram. Today, I'm joined by Piers Ingram, CEO and co-founder of Hummingbird Bioscience. Hi, Piers. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Jonathan. great Great to be able to join you.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you join us today to share about Hummingbird Bioscience and the business of biotech drug research and development. So uh, lots to talk about, but let's just start here. What is Hummingbird Bioscience and how did you found the company?
1: Sure. Um, So we are a a biotech uh, focused in um, biologics uh, in particular. We uh, initially founded the company in Singapore and uh, we have a team of around uh, 50 scientists um, based here and uh, a growing team in the U.S. as well. Focusing more on um, some of the development work, um, and uh, we are predominantly um, interested in oncology and autoimmune diseases. Uh, so, kind of really uh, good good targets where uh, biologics are able to have a um, a pretty significant impact on the on the course of disease.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So, and as I understand, you co-founded the company with your uh, chief scientific officer, Jerome Boyd Kirkup. So. How did you meet and then ultimately decide to, you know, start this company together?
1: (laughs) Sure. So um, the the two of us actually overlapped at uh, Imperial College um, when we were undergrads, but uh, didn't actually meet until we were in Shanghai. Um, And so um, both of us were were working in Shanghai um, about uh, five, six years ago. And uh, there was an uh, Imperial College uh, alumni reception, and uh, was uh, glad to attend one evening after work and um the the majority of people in the uh, in the group were finance focused and so it was it was kind of fun to find another scientist to, uh, to chat with and uh, i think you know we we really hit it off and, and started chatting about um you know our academic work and um the, the potential applications to to drug discovery and you know i figured it would be uh, worth having a a second beer to follow up on some ideas and uh, the, the rest <laughs> as they say is history
0: oh interesting so maybe I missed it, but uh, what were you doing in uh, Shanghai? And sure, so um,
1: I, I, I moved to Asia the, the first time in uh, two thousand seven, uh, two thousand eight. Um, after I finished my, my PhD, um, I worked for um, uh, a while in, in in Shanghai, and then um, went went back to uh, to Europe to continue my my academic um, uh, career for, for for a short time, um, and uh, had. Um, a position at uh, again at Imperial College um, as uh, a as faculty. Then um, in uh, in 2010, I decided I, I really did want to do something more applied um, and, and shift away from the academic uh, trajectory. That that brought me to Asia for the for the second time. And um, uh, first to do an MBA, um, which was of uh, the landing point into into Singapore. Um, and then post MBA, uh, I spent um, four or five years working um, first as a consultant and then um, in-house with one of the pharma companies in um, strategy planning roles um, in in the biopharma sector.
0: Mm, Okay. So, yeah, that would answer my next question, which is um, how did you find yourself in Asia? (laughs) So, yeah, um, just talking about the company, your uh, company, Hummingbird, you have operations in Singapore and also various locations in the US. So just to dive a a little bit deeper, what were the early days like? Setting up a company, as you mentioned, you were in the industry um, for a while before you decided to, you know, found this company yourself. So, what were the early days like, and um, what helped you choose Singapore as your Asia base? So, sure.
1: so I, I think um, the, the very earliest days of the company were, um, you know, as I guess naturally very focused on the proof of concept of the science and the the ideas that we were wanting to pursue. From kind of the earliest inception of the company, we have been interested in um, in HER3 as a as a drug target, and felt that there was a lot of potential in this target that had not really been captured by previous efforts to to drug this um, this protein, and um, we we felt that we had some ideas of, of how we might go about it that could be quite effective, um, and so the, the the earliest days were really raising the money to. Uh, to demonstrate those kind of early proof of concept experiments, I think we we started with you know very um, humble beginnings, uh, you know CRO expenses on our credit cards and uh, forgiving family members, but you know after six to twelve months, um, as the the earliest data started to really emerge and it looked um, quite encouraging, we formed the company and. Um, with uh, support from uh, uh, a small circle of, of um, some, some some great friends and, and supporters, we uh, we ended up founding the company and and uh, hiring our first colleagues. So that's kind of around the the, the twenty fifteen twenty sixteen uh, timeframe.
0: Mm, okay, and you mentioned you were already here before for your uh, I think MBA, so it wasn't like uh, your first time. Um checking out what Singapore was like, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I think I had, had um you know the, the fortunate um opportunity when I when I first arrived in Singapore for my MBA um to have um been introduced through some of my previous academic network to um some of the community in um biomedical research in Singapore, um in particular at the uh the Novartis Institute for Tropical Disease, which used to be here, um, the, the research group I was collaborating with. Um, in the uk had had collaborations with them in the area of uh, tuberculosis research um, and so there was kind of some, some some natural connections and it was it was great to kind of start to get to know the community and uh, realized it was it was potentially a, a great environment to, uh, to build the company in
0: hmm, interesting so the company's been around um for a few years now i think since 2015 you have a small pipeline of uh, drug assets and i'd love to ask you more about it later in the show but um yeah, last year life threw a pretty big curveball at us with the pandemic. Um, you know, everything was shut down, and businesses had to adapt. A number of companies have, you know, started developing vaccines. Some of them are now approved or about to be approved, and there are also like treatments being developed for the uh, novel coronavirus. So, um, Hummingbird also decided to join this kind of uh, global anti-COVID nineteen effort. So. Love for you to you know share with me um, one what 2020 was like for the company and and two um what was the decision behind pulling all the necessary resources together to you know develop a uh, program for a COVID-19 monoclonal antibody treatment?
1: Sure, um, you know as you as you said I, I think uh, 2020 was uh, quite quite the year. Um, I, I think particularly um, at the um, earlier stages of the, uh, the year as, as the kind of situation unfolded um, there's a huge uncertainty about um, you know what needed to be done and I think that hummingbird along with you know m- many organizations who had the capabilities to to support efforts felt um, a, a strong sense of, of obligation to do so I think we were fortunate to be able to to, to make a, a what we think is a very valuable contribution to to um, to an effort um, we were not the um the group that initiated the effort it was done in in collaboration with several other parties who had uh, the the initial concept and um also did a a lot of the heavy lifting um, on the program but i think what was was missing um in the other parties was the the capability particularly regionally to do some of the really critical early development work on the, the manufacturing so the um cell line and process development, the the scale up method development and and kind of all of the bits and pieces which kind of stand between the kind of the academic, this is an interesting antibody, it would be great if it was a drug, to actually seeing it into the clinic. And Because we had developed um, a lot of those capabilities for our own internal pipeline, we were were quite well placed to to be able to um, deploy those resources to, to support the project.
0: Mm, okay. So, but from a I guess business management standpoint, did you have to draw resources away from your existing kind of developmental programs to to put into this program?
1: No. To to, to an extent, yes. I think it, it was quite timely for us in terms of the the workload. Um, of, or our other programs had actually just um, switched from being predominantly internal to more external um, as they were going into GMP manufacturing and some sort of the formal tox work. Um, and so there was kind of actually a little bit of additional capacity um, beyond what we would have had um, six months earlier. Um, and the, the team um, put in just a phenomenal effort over four or five-month period to to deliver on, on what needed to be done. So I, I think that it was a we, <laughs> we we have no option except to to, to try to push this forwards and, and and do whatever needed to be done. And so uh yeah really salute my my colleagues um fantastic efforts to to deliver.
0: Mm, that's great. And yeah just to touch on it quickly, how is the um I guess uh COVID nineteen situation in Singapore? Because Hong Kong as we we saw a little bit of a spike uh, but it's now kind of come down a little bit. Everyone's still wearing masks and uh, there are a lot of restrictions. But uh, just one yeah. update from you for
1: Singapore. <laughs> the on-the-ground the on the report, right? <laughs> um, you know, right now, I think it's um, very low numbers. It, it's been very low numbers for, for a long time now. Um, there obviously were early waves um, in, in different populations before the control measures really um, stepped up. I think the the combination of the control measures with the um the border controls um have managed to maintain a very normal life for the majority of people in in the country. you know obviously it has significant impact on some businesses which is which is very unfortunate but for for the majority of people I think day to day life is is relatively normal but you know, I, there's a high degree of vigilance of course because I think what we've seen in in so many um, regions is that you know one one false move and um, the the virus can um, very quickly take uh, take hold in in the population, particularly with some of the new strains that um, are um, even more transmissible so I, I think there, there's a high degree of, of awareness reassurance that things are okay for now. And you know, I, I think we all we all look forward to seeing the uh, the global situation get under control and, and the vaccines become ever more available.
0: Mm, yeah, hopefully that is the case. Um, so yeah, coming back to your company, um, you're focusing on developing treatments for oncology. Uh, immune diseases and infectious diseases. And um, it says on the website, at Hummingbird, we harness powerful modern approaches to systems biology and data science to better understand disease mechanisms and how to treat these through the development of rationally engineered biotherapeutics. And so this is interesting to me because I read that you um, actually started your studies in applied mathematics, but then chose to, I guess, specialize into systems biology for your uh, PhD. So I'm kind of curious how you decided on systems biology and whether at the time you saw something in uh, cancer therapeutics and I guess it's evolution and development over time that led you to think, yeah, I want to work in this this field. Yeah.
1: <laughs> many, many, uh, many aspects to that question. Um So, you know, you're you're right. I, I trained initially as a as a mathematician um and a physicist, actually, and I I I switched into um into biological sciences for my for my PhD and, and postdoc work. And I was, I was very fortunate to be able to do so. I think there's a, there's actually a fairly well trodden path of, um, of mathematicians, um, finding biology, uh, in their, in their, um, grad school years. Um, so I was kind of glad not to be alone when I, uh, when I discovered the uh, the, uh, the, the four bears. But the concept really behind the, the company and a lot of what we do, um, is really the, the application of all of these tools that are becoming available to do what's essentially 21st century biology. And in a way, there's there's a philosophy aspect to it, which is, you know, a little bit vague um, sometimes. And then there's the hard pieces of it as well. And, you know, the, the, the hard pieces are, you know, technology platforms that we've developed, which are very, very powerful for antibody discovery and, and engineering that, you know, we, we haven't seen anybody else kind of... Um, Pursuing this 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 avenue, despite you know, kind of a couple of years um, of, of history now, kind of between when we started and, and others could have followed, and I think that some of the toolkits that we've developed they rely on the fact that um, we have a very very multidisciplinary team. Um, you know, we have mathematicians, physicists, um, chemists, um, as well as the kind of the hardcore um, immunology uh, molecular biology cohort um, of, of colleagues working in the company. And that's, I guess, gets to the, the philosophy part of it, which is that systems biology has the disadvantage of being a little bit kind of nothing, a little bit everything, um, if you're not careful, right? What, what do we really mean here? But I think at its heart, it, it speaks to that um, multidisciplinarity that we, we want to make sure that um, we all get to a, a common understanding of the core problems that, that we that we want to solve and that we, we tackle them in in very, very um, data-rich, occasionally model-driven ways, but also with the kind of the full confidence of you know, the, the latest techniques in um, high-dimensional flow and the latest techniques of, of, of molecular biology and immunology. And really kind of this this joint team effort sounds like it should be what everybody's doing to, to us. I, I hope that you know more and more people will, will do that. But the majority of groups that we see um are, are still a little bit more fragmented than that. You know, it's 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 still not so common to have these these really um multidisciplinary teams working on on problems together. And so that's that's a little bit the philosophy of it, I guess.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I guess from your company standpoint, you do make a distinction between how you discover Drugs versus I guess, other biotechs, right, because you use, um, as you say, uh, your discovery platform. Um, and I see on 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 the website there is this uh, nice little diagram of how you predict potentially uh, really desirable targets uh, or binding sites and to uncover that and and then design a a, a drug that will really hit that. Um, can you maybe speak a little bit about how uh, the system works?
1: Sure. So th- this is really, um, I-, I think, one of the key success factors for the company has been the the successful development of this technology platform. Um, you know, as I said at the the uh, the outset of the conversation, we were very interested in in her three. I think you know every every scientist can see the same data and draw the same conclusions that her three seems to be a really important target, it driving uh, cancer cell growth, resistance to, um, to other agents, um, and yet people had, had not been um, successful in, in, in drugging it. When you can peel back the layers and, and understand what it is that these other um, HER3 uh, antibodies do, they, they all have very much a similar mechanism of action. They all bind in a very similar region of the protein. Um, and, uh, elicit a, a response which um, is is not good enough, typically, unfortunately, um, because the, that region that is very easy to get antibodies to bind to isn't necessarily the most important functional region of the protein. And so what we what we set out to do was to incorporate all of the um, structural and um, functional insights around how HER3 forms complexes with his partners, uh, particularly um, EGFR and HER2. It forms these um, these heterodimers, which which signal through the PI3K pathway, um, and and how those complexes actually form, which which interfaces of the protein um, are really critical for those those complexes to form. And and realized that none of the other antibodies were hitting those interfaces. And so what we what we set out to do was to really determine well within that that interface what's really a good epitope for an antibody to bind to that would be a, a functional but also developable drug, have all of the uh, the safety, uh, specificity, and, and all of those other uh, attributes, and then to take that forward, um, and then engineer a response that actually does bind to that epitope. Um, and and that is something quite unique to, to the company, is this ability to uh, manipulate the um the immune response um during the antibody discovery phase and bias it towards those um those sites of interest.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's pretty challenging to go after hard to target epitopes and things like that. So uh was it difficult to do the hard thing, <laughs> yeah. Because you mentioned you were very early on; you were already interested in her three and um, these more hard to target epitopes. So, sure.
1: You know, in in, in way, I think um, it's the only thing that a small company can do, right? I think we we can never um, compete with the um, the big companies in terms of resources that we can um, deploy. Against a uh, an easy target, you know, a low-hanging fruit target. So, what's uh, the the interesting and, and meaningful opportunity for us is to go after these difficult targets, where we think that the uh, classical platforms uh, that the, the majority of groups have access to. Um, have, for whatever reason, not yielded good enough um, therapeutic candidates, and where the the data is still kind of overwhelmingly pointing in the direction that this should be a great target if we could drug it, um, and that kind of confluence um, of uh, kind of opportunity and challenge makes for great uh, drug discovery programs in in our view.
0: Mm, okay interesting yeah so like talking about your pipeline um we already already mentioned her three so you have two lead candidates hmbd 001 is her three and 002 targets the the vista protein yeah. and as we've already alluded to these are um pretty new targets uh they're not like her two or pd1 pdl1 uh clta4 um you know these are so widely researched and um uh, focused on already by um, big pharma and stuff. So, can you talk a little bit about Vista and how significant this is for, uh, I guess, disease progression?
1: Sure. I think um you know, Vista is um, it's, it's another very good example of a of a hard target. It's, it's easy to make an antibody against Vista. It's it's very difficult to make the right antibody against Vista that has the the right functional properties. And I think that that is. Um, you know why it's been a, a great target for us to um, to pursue, but I think unlike HER3, where there were you know 10-15 years of background knowledge in, in the system which we could really take advantage of, with Vista I think it's um, put a lot more kind of attention on our own uh, biology capabilities as a as a company um, to really elucidate some of the fundamental biology of the target as we go. Because we um, obviously need to convince ourselves um, and convince partners and regulators and um, the the community that um, this is a this is a good target. And so, I think when we started to work on the program, there was quite a lot of circumstantial data showing high levels of VISTA expression in um, in tumours, showing, for example, that patients who are treated with anti-PD1 or um, CTLA4 therapy or even with with CAR T therapy have a response which shows kind of an increase in the number of Vista positive uh, myeloid cells in the tumor microenvironment which seem to be suppressing the activity of the um, of the anti-tumor uh, T cells and so um, this kind of as I said was was circumstantial evidence um, and there were absolutely you know some some fundamental um, papers out there showing knockout phenotypes showing the the ability of of Vista to to suppress T-cells directly. Um, But what what we had to do and and, and continue to do on on kind of the research side um, is is really start to um, further put the pieces of the story together, understand what Vista's binding partners are, what signaling pathways, which cytokines are involved, how Vista changes um, the the microenvironment when these Vista-positive cells um, are are present and and how the blockade of that alters that, that phenotype um, and so I, I think it's, um, it's a, it's a tough target because there's, there's a lot of heavy lifting to do on, um, on the biology as well. And I think we've been um, very fortunate to have some, some great, um, collaborators and, um, SAB guidance on, on tackling this, um, because it's, it's, it's truly a hard target.
0: Mm, doing hard things. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talking about um these hard targets and um I guess it's cancer therapeutics, we've seen in like the recent few years, maybe even the past decade almost, I guess a new new approach to treating cancer. Um recently uh you mentioned CAR T, new class of uh cancer treatment. You're also hearing um antibody drug conjugates, uh ADCs and um a lot of um Combination therapies, which has yielded a lot of partnerships between companies trying to combine their um, drugs to see if the outcome is even better than I guess monotherapy, I know these uh, your pipeline is still pretty young, uh, pretty early in the development stage, but with your drugs, do you see it being potentially being applicable as Combination therapies, uh, ADCs, and yeah, you know, I guess I'm asking about like the optionality potentially.
1: Sure, sure. So I, I, I think um, you know ADCs and, and other uh, kind of mechanisms that you know we can um, build on top of an antibody. Provides a, a lot of optionality in, in how we take a, a, a binder forwards, right? So I, I think you know, problem one is is can you get an antibody that binds to the target? Problem two is okay, now you now you can bind the target. What do you do? And ATCs and, and are um, potentially a, a promising additional modality once you once you have that, but it's not not actually a, a strong focus for, for us at present. But with you know, regard to the the combination opportunities and need I think absolutely one one um, I think quite profound piece of advice I had um, you know in the early days of the company from from a very experienced um, drug developer was that you know it's it's very critical in the early days of the program to to demonstrate the monotherapy activity of your agent you know you have to show that your your drug directly impacts the system and maybe that's no clinical benefit, ideally, um, or even just through some PT markers, but you need to show that your drug is doing something. Otherwise, you mm. know, it's, it's very difficult to convince anyone that, um, that they should be supporting um, this program. But that being said, of course... In all of these diseases, we are we are going into an existing standard of care, even in clinical trials. If it's the, the the later lines of therapy. You know, these are patients who um, have been pretreated or, or may continue to receive additional treatments. We want to understand why and and how the the agents that we're developing will fit into that paradigm, um, and what the the underlying kind of biological rationale for, for combinations is. And as we look kind of further up the um, the, the lines of care. Um, and understand, you know, some of the new agents that are are being developed. You know, there's sometimes a very, very compelling rationale to um, to pursue um, combinations. You know, for for HER3, um, there is so much evidence that the upregulation of HER3 and the PI3K pathway um, is a very conserved mechanism of resistance to to MAP kinase pathway inhibitors. You know, be that um, EGFR or HER2 inhibitors, or, or further downstream with with small molecules. You know, one of the things that the tumor cells seem to do when you kind of hit the MAP kinase pathway is, is upregulate the PI3 kinase pathway. So there's a lot of very good scientific rationale and, and data to support combinations with, with MAP kinase uh, inhibitors. You know, turning to um, turning to Vista, as I, I mentioned, one of the, the earlier pieces of data that got people excited about Vista as a target was this evidence of the increase in um, Vista positive myeloid cells post-PD-1 therapy or or CTLA-4 therapy. Um, And so there is, again, a a compelling scientific argument to be made to test these um, and see if the combination of anti-VISTA therapy with with PD-1 or CTLA-4 blockade um, will have a a benefit. Um, And the the preclinical models um, certainly suggest so, Um, and so um, we we will absolutely be exploring that uh, in the clinic.
0: Mm. yeah it sounds very exciting, and um, you know just from hearing what you're uh, you're sharing, uh, it sounds like there definitely has the evidence that um, targeting these uh, targets will have application either you know second line or third line or maybe even first line somehow uh, in a combination type of uh, uh, treatment yeah, so yeah, really looking forward to just just seeing how your research goes um, as we kind of wrap up our our chat. I want to get an update from you. From um, you know what you're expecting this year in 2021. Um, you have your COVID-19 uh, monoclonal antibody program. Uh, your I think your lead candidates. You're you're planning to submit um, to the regulators, right? For yes, both
1: programs. Yes, the the team loves me. We've got uh, three three programs in the clinic all at the same time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, you're right. It's, it's a it's a great year um, potentially for the company if if these programs um, progress as we um, as we plan and anticipate. You know, it, it's been a um, a relatively long, um, but in the context of drug development, maybe not that long a journey. Uh, you know, as uh, you said earlier, we started the company in kind of twenty fifteen we had the company and the, so the platform really up and running kind of 2015, uh, 16, 17 timeframe. And so, you know, just have seen several exciting programs come out of that platform technology and really become viable drug candidates in a, in a kind of a three-year um, time horizon um, is, is actually pretty unusual. And I think um, speaks to the, the hard work of, of our colleagues as, as well as the productivity of the technology. And so we have additional programs um kind of coming up behind those those um two lead programs that we that we spoke about but yeah the obviously the key for this year is the successful initiation um, of the of the clinical programs um for her three and for vista
0: Mm, okay are you looking to expand your pipeline even more or do you have too much on your plate right now (laughs)
1: So we had exactly this conversation internally yesterday. So, oh, great. We've got another fantastic antibody to this target. <laughs> Who's going to develop this one? <laughs> uh, looking around the room for a volunteer. Um, no, we, we have um, beyond what's in the public uh, domain about what we're working on, as I mentioned, we have, um, we have a couple of programs that are perhaps um, kind of 15 to 18 months behind the two lead programs that we are really excited about. Um, one in um, the, the multiple myeloma space, uh, another in uh, the lupus space, so kind of moving um, towards autoimmune disease um, uh, as well. Um, and then kind of behind that, um, there are many interesting targets that I think we've been able to um, to use as, as test cases for the platform as we, we really try to understand the, the capabilities of what this platform technology can do, um, which have a, a strong... Justification to to be potentially developed as um, as new programs, and so I think we will obviously um, take a very um, disciplined approach in terms of what we develop internally and, and what we, as a still a relatively small company, can um, effectively execute on um, versus what we should um, collaborate on externally, where we may not be the best type of people to really uh, pursue these programs.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So um, I know that you. Do a lot of speaking engagements as well. And unfortunately last year seems like everything went online. So, but just, um, you know, with hope for 2021, are you scheduled to speak or make any presentations or attend any conferences? And how can people kind of follow your work?
1: <laughs> thank you yes no i there's this this whole um kind of uh, regular public presentations thing is is actually relatively new to me uh <laughs> getting getting into the swing in the last couple of years as you said. <laughs> um you know as a company we have um, been very um, disciplined about making sure that we publish as much as we can. Uh, we published a paper on the on the high three program um, last year we we should be able to publish a paper uh, we should submit really in the next few weeks on the vista program um, and you know we I think kind of um, public disclosure of the science that we do and the the underlying um, rationale for our programs is I think really important and, and builds you know, uh, an important um, degree of confidence um, in the program and the rationale as we as we go into um, clinical studies. Um, and that's something that's very, very important to us. We also present um, at uh, conferences. I think we have um, just uh, just seen our, our presentation at ACR has been accepted, so we'll be sharing some some material there. Um, and you know throughout the throughout the calendar. But uh, I think for, for regular updates on what we're doing, we, we try not to bombard people with, with emails, but uh, the, the, the company LinkedIn page is, is getting pretty busy. Um, and so that, that's probably kind of a good place to check on what we're up to uh, most recently.
0: Mm, yeah. Busy is good. Busy is good. <laughs> and yeah, finally, before I let you go, um, I guess I just want to ask you uh, to share something, I guess, about yourself, maybe... Do you have any books you like to read, or um, you know, as a scientist yourself, have you uh, spoken to any younger scientists and given advice to people about what you should know uh, before starting a biotech startup? Or <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, um, one thing which has really taken my breath away has been how supportive the community has been of a new biotech starting up. I think. Um, you know we, we obviously we compete with with many other companies. Somebody asked me the other day, you know who do you see as your competitors? I said, well, you know it's it's very kind of indication and target specific and molecule specific. And the majority of those competition, they're also collaborators on on something else. And I, I think that that kind of spirit of, of collaboration and willingness for things to succeed um, as we you know all together tackle um, you know problems in human health. Um, is is really really encouraging, and I think I'd say to anybody who's kind of thinking about um, going into the uh, the idea of of building a biotech company, um, it's it's a lot of hard work, but there's there's a lot of people who cheer you on along the way. But, um, I think is you know we all share a, a common goal here, really.
0: Yeah, that's one thing I like about our industry is very collaborative. Um, unlike say the I guess the tech industry, uh, recently I saw a headline about how Facebook is not happy with Apple because they're <laughs> pulling out some <laughs> iOS, uh, privacy, uh, controls that would kind of, um, I guess, step on Facebook's advertising business. So, um, yeah, so I, that's one thing I like about our, our industry. You do com- compete, but you also have so many opportunities to collaborate and discover um you know new medicines that can help um potentially millions of people. So yeah. So now that you are you've been a guest on the podcast, uh Hummingbird Bioscience is now a permanent friend of the podcast. So we welcome you to, you know, come chat with us anytime.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, look forward to uh look forward to catching up again and uh hopefully in person one of these days as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. So thanks for your time.
1: Thanks again.
0: Bye-bye. And that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in and supporting the podcast. This year, I'd like to have more guests on and cover more topics. So if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you're getting your podcasts. See you in the next episode.
2: Felt awkward and insecure. As they pulled the told them, I don't wanna be the subject I don't no show.